Hello and welcome to the Tucson Climate Chats podcast. This October 19th recording, our 10th overall, comes to you from occupied indigenous lands in the north central neighborhood of Avondale. As always, I am your host, Nick Spinelli, an AmeriCorps VISTA member working on behalf of Arizona Serve, Prescott College, and Changemaker High School to demonstrate how national service can address both climate and poverty in the urban core of the Sonoran Desert. Our guests today are Ruby, Dot, Iman, and Ursula, students here in Tucson and founding members of High Schoolers for Climate Justice. Welcome aboard, you four. So to start us off, I'm going to quote from a recent article published on The Conversation by David Tyndall, professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia. The title of the article is What Lies Ahead for Fridays for Future and the Youth Climate Movement. And David had this to say about youth activism in particular, quote, people get involved in social movements for a variety of reasons, but one common starting point is concern about a particular issue. This is also true of youth climate activists, but their concern registers at an entirely different magnitude. Many youth have an existential dread of what the climate crisis means for their future. Some question whether they have a future at all. Their commitment to change is significantly greater than it might be for other social movements." Unquote. What do y'all think? Where do we start with that? Um, I think that that quote, especially in the beginning, really gets to like the heart of why a lot of young activists get into climate activism because the thought of not having a future is very real. Um, it's a very real possibility if we don't do work now. Um, towards the end, I'm not sure that it's necessarily that there's like a greater call necessarily for this because climate justice inherently is racial justice. It's inherently economic justice. It's like not comparing all of the different um, like social movements together, but really trying to like intertwine them into one social movement. Yeah, just going off of what Ursula said, um, I think she hit it like pretty spot on. Um, climate change is an inherently social issue. Um, and that's often overlooked because the people that are at the receiving end of these, you know, horrible social impacts are some of the most marginalized communities. Um, and so I don't think that it's fair to say that young climate activists you know, have a greater commitment than any other movement because so many of us are committed to other movements just as much as we are committed to climate change because they are so intersectional. Um, I think that it's like Ruby, Ursula, and Dot have all said, uh, there's a lot of intersectionality within the climate movement. And I think that's because um, climate and its effects are felt by everyone, everyone within every single movement everywhere. And um, it's because of this intersectionality, because of its impact that we're able to reach so many people and that so many people are able to get involved. But um, I think the last part of the quote is really unfair to, com uh, to compare it to other movements because it's of a different breed in itself. 
um, a lot of issues don't have this kind of intersectionality that climate does. And so when you compare the two, it's like comparing apples to oranges. They both, they both might be fruits, but it's really two different things in general. Well said. As uh, a friend of mine often liked to say during my first year in grad school, comparison is the thief of joy. It really is. Reading that article, I'm 26, right? That last sentence didn't even stand out to me. I just kind of nodded. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. This makes me wonder if he's even talked to young people such as yourselves, because that was not a perspective that I had previously. So good thoughts there. Um, yeah, let's start at the beginning. High schoolers for climate justice, I think a good place to start might be, you know, uh, tell me a little bit about your individual and or personal journeys to kind of doing the work that you're doing now. When did you realize there was an issue and when did you start taking steps to address it uh, in your lives? Um, I guess my like journey into activism didn't really start with climate justice. Um, I mainly started to become more involved with women's rights and reproductive rights. And then like slowly after coming out queer rights um, and just being in those spaces slowly led me to climate activism. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to a school where we were taught more like climate change um, than other schools. It's a small charter school, Paulo Freire. Um, so my teacher there definitely led me kind of to really care and really be educated um, about the subject of climate change. And then, you know, that mixed with more and more climate dread and panic uh, sent me to like really feeling like this work needs to be done. And like, hey, why not me being a person to help do it? Yeah, my little journey, I guess, is pretty similar to Ursula's. Um, I went to that same school. So all the teachers there were like really supportive of all the activism that people were doing. So I think that the first protest I organized was in seventh grade. Um, and it's either seventh or eighth grade. Um, and it was all around like gun safety and gun rights um, because of all the school shootings that happened that year um and then from there it kind of just grew into like more activism as i did more research um the first like climate act action that i organized was march 15th um and we had maybe 12 people show up um and i like completely forgot that i did that at one point <laughs> like yeah I found it on my like Instagram archive one day and I was like, oh yeah, I did that. Yeah. See, Ursula <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> huh. Literally like 12 people showed up. We were in front of a court building in downtown. Um, and then from there, it just kind of like kept going. Um, eventually I spoke at a town hall put on by Sunrise Tucson. Um, and that's kind of when everything jumped off. And then I started organizing more with groups. And then here we are. <laughs> um, so for me, it's again, very similar. Um, I went to Paula Freire, but it was a different campus. And so um, 
I would say actually my activism journey really started when I first moved to Tucson because I'm not from here. And so uh, we moved here because of a family friend and she's the one who kind of introduced us to social justice and activism. She was really involved in uh, a lot of different border activism. So things like Operation Streamline and um, getting DACA uh, paper, getting people papers and um, helping with the clinic at my church. And that was another place. Uh, my church is really active in um, border justice as well. So that's really where I got my start is uh, going to my first protest and walking up to that border wall and seeing the different people on their within their graduation caps on both sides of the border, walking up and just chanting and drones and all that loveliness. Um, after that, um, I really started learning about climate in I think it was seventh grade when we had a climate symposium and we were all tasked with a different piece of climate change. And so my focus was actually on animals and how they were affected. And um, listening to all these different things that would happen uh, and wanting to do something about them really kind of had me thinking, but I didn't actually get started for another couple of years after that until here in high school uh, when Ariana really made stuff known to me uh, through Sunrise and that's really where I started shooting off and going at it. Um, we we kind of very much have similar stories, like all of us. So, um, but my mom, she went to um, Native. She went to the U of A Law School um, and was in the Indigenous program, the Indigenous Law program, and. At the time, the people in the group were making signs and posters to go protest in Dakota for the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, and I got to help make the signs. And I didn't really know what it was about. But her friends and homies and all the different teachers got to, uh, you know, we got to talk about it. And I really didn't know. And at the same time, I was also barely learning about what was happening in uh, Flint, Michigan, which had happened, which for some reason still isn't, like they're still fighting for clean water. But I, that's when I really became like, hey, there's a lot of issues going on in this world. And I just started reaching out and looking for, like, I didn't know where to start in terms of like how I can get my voice heard and mm -hmm. make a change. And I actually think that it was Ruby's little march that I saw on her Instagram, her little 12 people march. Um, that I was like, whoa, there's little, there's kids my age doing this in my city. Like, let's go join them. And I signed up for um, a sunrise training that was happening by in my in Tucson. Uh, and that's where I first met Iman. Um, and Ruby was there as well, and we got to learn little songs. Um, and ever since then, like we, us three, worked together to start the to plan the September twentieth event. And then Ursula came along. Um, we've just been unstoppable ever since. Unstoppable! <laughs> I love it. Especially considering, you know, yeah, 12 people to start. I mean, we all got to start somewhere, right? But like, clearly there is quite a legacy from that event. That's awesome. Um, 
one of you touched on climate change and how it's taught in schools. And I just want to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. Don't worry. I really, really want to unpack that. But for now, I want to keep following this historical narrative. You know, you all got your individual starts. Tell me a little bit about high schoolers for climate justice and how that actually got off the ground. What is it? What are you doing? What should people know? Okay. Um, so it got started right around the September 20th strike, um, but didn't really kick off till the December 6th strike. Um, but basically, all of us were working with Sunrise Tucson and uh, in some capacity working with Arizona Youth Climate Coalition, which used to be Arizona Youth Climate Strike. Um, and we just noticed working with both of these groups um, that there was not a lot of high school representation in most of the meetings. We were the only high school um, students. So, you know, we tried to make our voices heard and, you know, show our concerns for some of these actions, which weren't really accessible for high school students um, and no shade to either of these groups. We've loved working with them. Um, but we just felt that it was more important that we branch out and get a group going where more high school students feel safe working on this movement and feel heard um, and, you know, feel like they can actually make a difference. Um, and so it started with the four of us and then we're still definitely like the core team, but we've definitely branched out quite a bit. Uh, and I think that was definitely shown with the September 20th climate strike where we had about a thousand students in attendance. Yeah, if anybody else wants to like go off of that. Yeah, we are a super tiny like core group. Um, it's mainly the four of us in general, but we work with so many amazing people and uh, we have like more of a reach and more people who just kind of like stop in and do really amazing work. Um, so it's a really nice mix of a small like little organization that has just so many people helping. And um, yeah, the people that I've met like through this and the people, the four people here uh, have like really taught me so much. So thank y'all. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice. And you're right about things taking off and definitely branching out because correct me if I'm wrong, you just recently had a presentation at what I believe was a national conference, virtual of course, because of COVID, sad emoji. The North American Association for Environmental Education, NAAEE, did I get that right? Tell me about that. That is amazing. That's so exciting. I wanna hear more. Uh, yeah, so the National Association for Environmental Education from what I got from it was is like a national conference where people will pay big money to both present and go watch. Um, educators talk about climate change and um, what needs to be done about it or what people are teaching about it right now. But from um, what 
what we were being told about it when uh, Ariana signed us up was that high schoolers and people who are in school being educated aren't the ones talking about it and that there have been no other high schoolers or even youth for that matter uh, presenting at this. So when she signed us up, there was, uh, she was really excited because we were the first and um, Ruby, oh my God, love her. She put the whole slide <laughs> together, all of them, and they looked amazing. And it was just so in depth and um, it got right down to the core. Our presentation was about, I mean, if you wanna go talk about, if you wanna talk about it, Ruby, uh, go ahead. Yeah, so our presentation um, was all about how we as students think educators should go about teaching climate justice. Um, so we talked a lot about the issue of how it's currently taught, um, focusing on the US, of course, since, you know, that's where the bulk of the issue is, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just kind of true. Um, <laughs> so just talking about, you know, how climate change is represented in some of the state standards, um, and then just how many students actually lack proper environmental education. Um, and then I think the part that most people found the most helpful was we compiled some tips that we think educators should use to teach climate change um, and climate justice. Um, we focused a lot on the social impacts of it, um, as well as how to teach climate change, which is this like really scary and disheartening issue um, that, you know, causes a lot of like dread and grief, um, how to teach that in a way that instills hope and gets people active in this movement. Yeah. I have the, so in the slides, um, like Ruby said, there was, she kind of made a little infographic of the do's and don'ts of how to teach climate education. Would you want me to like list them? Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. Okay, cool. Teach about current innovations and policies. So like different legislation that people have written about climate change, AKA the Green New Deal, the Red Deal, or what have you. Um, do address climate change as a systemic problem because like we all mentioned, it is intersectional and it is based in systemic racism and injustice and patriarchy. Patriarchy is in everything. Um, yep. <laughs> go on. Do share the facts given to us by the scientists, um, because there was also a lot of a lot of the reasons that climate isn't taught in schools is because um, people, a lot of people, are fear monger, fear monger, fear mongering people. Oh my god, that don't really believe in science or, yeah. And the last one is do use engaging materials like movies, books, and labs because um, we're high schoolers, we're kids, we have very short attention spans and keeping us activated is like the best way to teach people because learning from all different form, learning in all different forms is just the best way to teach it and for kids to remember it. Uh, and for the don't, we have don't use a carbon footprint test. And what a carbon footprint test is um, a website made by big oil companies um, 
that kind of puts the blame back on people for their own individual everyday uses and how that's causing climate change when in reality it's big companies and corporations um, that don't like to take the blame for things, um, which is a big problem in climate justice or in solving climate change. Um, don't avoid some of the scarier facts. Um, Um, because you have to be honest because speaking about the scary facts really addresses the severity of it and addresses how little time we have left to solve this and how it's important um, for everyone to know about it. Do, I mean, don't just teach the science because as important as science is, it doesn't really show the effects. It doesn't show the effects on marginalized people. It doesn't show how it affect, how intersectionalized it is and how differently it affects different people. And also science is boring sometimes and um, kids don't really feel the connection to statistics, but they do feel a connection to personal stories about earthquakes and um, tornadoes and all these different things. Um, don't teach opinions, but do teach for opinions. And, and I'm, I'm not sure quite what this means. So review if you'd like to explain. Yeah, so basically this means um, just like leaving your own personal opinion as an educator out of the conversation when teaching climate change because, um, you know, you really do need to rely on the facts and the statistics because there is so much misinformation just circulating the internet, specifically social media, which is a lot of what people our age consume. Um, but the important thing to do is to present your students with all this evidence so that they're able to form their own opinions and able to, you know, make these real connections so that, you know, they can like figure out what needs to be done and figure out what they want to do about it. Um, yeah. If I may, really quickly, um, I'd just like to add to our idea of don't just teach the science. Um, I think that's a super important thing that we touch on a lot. Um, listening to the science is, of course, critical, and science in this topic is more than extremely important. But sometimes people can forget that, you know, this is a human issue, and there is a lot of privilege that comes with kind of ignoring um, how marginalized people are impacted by this. And not only that, but when you're teaching climate justice, you know, as Dot touched on, the statistics don't make people feel anything. It's the fact that it's a human issue that really, you know, breeds empathy and like empathy is what kind of propels us forward as a cause and gets people to join the cause and like make a change. Okay, yeah, extremely well said. Um, you know, thinking about that empathy piece and how, and these are my words, not yours. I think humans are a storytelling species in general. That's kind of how we relate to each other, right? Like I showed up here in July 
I guess this is one of the hottest summers on record. I mean, I was out this weekend and it was 98 degrees this Saturday. 98 degrees in the middle of October, y'all. That is not normal. And I've had a lot of people tell me that it's not normal either. It's scary. So thinking about those stories, and I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, I'm wondering if any of you have stories from your own lives about how either you've been affected by this, how people you know have been affected by this, you know, how can we humanize this so it's not just stats and it's not just, hey, we're 12 degrees above average, um, you know, make it a little bit more relatable for folks. So I have played softball since I was like five um, and we have our summer ball. Unfortunately, this year we missed out, but last year was one of, was an, was one of the hottest like softball seasons we had. Um, and there was this really scary moment where we were practicing on the field and we had to stop because there was a strong hot like windstorm or a dust storm, I guess. And we had to sit in the dust storm for maybe like seven to eight minutes, like with our eyes closed, like, and we didn't know that when it was gonna end or not. Um, and after that, I realized like, damn, it is kind of hot. It do be kind of hot. Um, and it just kept getting hotter. And it got to the point where kids were passing out during softball season for my school softball season, kids were passing out on the field, um, like of heat exhaustion. Um, and I even had to be, I started throwing up after uh, practice. And I was like, geez, this, so I quit. I became manager. I was like, everyone else could play, you know, uh, that along with a bunch of other reasons. But one of them being like, I cannot stand the heat. Um, and also I get somewhere really easily and it's just been too hard to go outside right now. Um, but I can, um, a lot of kids have lost like like kids can't be in the heat right now. A lot of kids are really sensitive to it, um, especially kids with um, respiratory problems as well. It's along with climate change is also like air pollution and it being hot and hard to breathe is just like too much. <laughs> so I know a lot of other kids are out there feeling me right now. And of course the places where there's like the most air pollution are in like more low income areas of like big cities where the families don't have as good as healthcare to like treat the respiratory issues and get proper like treatment when it happens. So my church actually does this uh, program called the Samaritans. And so what they do is they go out into the desert and they put out food and water. And um, I can't say very much more, um, but they do great things in the desert uh, for people who happen to be crossing or just need something. And uh, recently I've just, um, so, hold on. So they do this all year round, basically. They do it summer months all the way into the winter months and over and over again. And uh, recently um, and every summer I hear this but it just keeps getting worse is that um, they're finding it harder to go further out and they're finding uh, more people that need help 
uh, more people are passing away due to the heat um, and more people aren't make it are able to make it uh, to where they need to be and um, so along with this um, there's the sanctuary movement in Tucson and for a while they um, there was this place where a lot of them would go and um, my church would take the youth to go and help out at this place and we would um, listen to stories and we would help out and we would pack water and we would translate and we would um, yeah so some of the kids would translate for medical help and so what you end up hearing are these stories of like my father died my mother died my child i had to leave my child behind because we didn't have enough water or it was too hot or we got caught because we needed to get out of the heat and like we thought they could help us we thought this mm -hmm. border patrol <laughs> would be able to assist us and then you, um hearing these stories and knowing that uh the people who could do something about it the people who are messing up the planet and making life harder for individuals uh, whose lives are already hard and people who are just trying to get to a better life really just ticks me off a lot. Yeah, there's a huge connection between like heat, which in turn climate change and people who are trying to cross the border, especially illegally. Um, there's this book, it's called The Devil's Highway um, about the Yuma 14, um, who were trying to cross into the US. Um, and there's like an entire chapter dedicated to like going through the stages of heat exhaustion, which lead to heat death. Um, and it's really intense. It's like a really horrible process. Um, and yeah, like a lot of, so, you know, everyone pretty much who's crossing in that desert, like experiences like varying degrees of heat exhaustion. Um, but with the later ones, a lot of people who are trying to cross are just, you know, praying that Border Patrol would find them because it's unbearable, you know, their eyes are literally cooked. Um, clothing hurts to wipes. Yeah, it's really intense. Um, it's a good read. While we're still talking about immigration, um, a lot of people do move because of climate disasters. Um, and in that same sense, indigenous people statistically, when they migrate due to climate um, disasters, they're more likely to be victims of sex trafficking and um, illegal child labor and what have you, especially at the border or especially in, in um, a band, like, um, low-income places, especially coming from um, deep south of central, of, of North America, the south of North America and Central America, um, where um, drugs have taken over the government. But migration leads to um, a lot of sex trafficking and And all of that, you know, crime is directly tied into the corporations, which is tied into the government. And it's just all a big loop. 
Yeah. And I think there was something about patriarchy in there somewhere, right? <laughs> All these ingredients. Yeah. I, um, no, go ahead. So one thing that we recognize within a lot of climate movements is that um, a lot of this stems from capitalism and our um, systems that like to oppress people. And so uh, when we value the dollar over the people, we get issues like climate change and um, climate injustice and racial injustice and things like that, uh, where we're more focused on making a profit than we are taking care of the people in our country. And that leads to um, things like wars being fought over water, um, lands being disrupted and um, slandered and abused and people being abused as well with them. And um, so this idea of like um, smash the patriarchy and um, disrupt capitalism and all of that uh, really um, intersects with climate justice in a very strong and like visible and measurable way. I think it's important to uh, like recognize how like women's rights connect like directly to climate justice as well. Um, you know, a lot of efforts against climate change are being led by indigenous women. Um, and that's something that's not talked about enough. Also to add on to that, um, just trans folks, um, usually BIPOC trans folks um, face some of the worst consequences of climate change um, because, I mean, as we already know, BIPOC people usually, you know, receive the worst effects of climate change. Um, and then in a study, oh God, I don't remember who did it, um, but it was shown that trans folks are more likely to get assaulted during a climate disaster than any other time. Um, and, you know, so many people just don't talk about that. And it's so many, you know, indigenous women and trans folks that are leading this charge. And yet, because we live in like a white, specifically white male dominated society, you know, these people just, <laughs> they just don't get the recognition they deserve for the work that they're doing. Yeah, every time I talk to my Nana, she calls me um, Greta Thunberg, or Greta Thunberg. And I'm like, Grandma, I am not very, like, I love her. She's great, but also I'm not her. Like, she's her own wonderful woman. I'm my own wonderful woman. Um, but yeah, indigenous people, black and indigenous people, bottom of the barrel, especially in the climate situation. Um, and in so many different ways, because I was doing a project on food deserts, which led me to discover that when pipelines are being built on native reservations or even not so in just wherever they create these, what you call man camps where the construction workers live. And we're sorry, where those van caps are built, indigenous people are being kidnapped and stolen from their land and taken to those man caps, man camps to be sex trafficked and raped and um, abused. 
And that's where most of our MMIW come from. And that's where most of them go to die um, right now as well. Uh, and uh, British Columbia in Canada, indigenous people are fighting over, it is their season currently to be fishing um, or to go collect lobster because that's what their trade is. And the non-indigenous folk, uh, the indigenous folk have a treaty to fish on their season. And because the non-indigenous people lot, uh, lost their chance because of COVID, uh, non-indigenous people are setting fires to lobster processing plants, killing native people, um, and literally like going to war with them because they lost their like lost their right to fit to go uh, harvest lobster. Um, and Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Blackface, uh, two times has not said anything about it, but is out here on Twitter talking about how he's such a good political leader and that um, he feels so sorry for all the wrongdoings that are happening in these developing countries while he's letting that happen in his own, in his own country. So, like I said, we get the bottom of the barrel. Um, and so I think that Black Indigenous people, especially queer Black and Indigenous people need to be the one fighting these battles, need to be at the forefront of this leading. Um, so I love this group here because we're doing it, period. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you know, of course, I think you deserve all the kudos, right? But I think especially um, for bearing witness, you know, this idea that at, and I don't want to say an incredibly young age, because I think that would belie the level of like worldliness and maturity and experience that y'all have. But when I think about even where I was at, <clears throat> excuse me, in my own trajectory at your age, you know, we'll say seven or eight years ago. Um, unbelievable, right? Like how much further are along that, how much further you are all on, how much further along that continuum of awareness y'all are. And it's not easy, right? You know, some of the things that you're talking about, I'm getting a little misty eyed over here. <laughs> you can't see that because this is a podcast, but like it's happening, right? Like there's no way not to hear those stories, at least in my mind and to realize like, oh my God, you're right. This isn't a scientific issue. This is a human issue. And to hear young voices like yourselves put it that well, just so simply and so powerfully, there's something to be said for that. Um, so one, thank you. And two, I'm wondering, you know, what fills your cups up? What keeps you going? What makes you get out of bed in the morning when you're like, man, the world just sucks. I don't know. How do you move past that and keep doing the work? Um, so I'm going to let you in on a little gym secret. Um, <laughs> I love that phrase, gym secret. Uh, number one, uh, I think the reason, just to kind of touch on what you said before, like the first part uh, about how your generation really wasn't at that point when you were our age. Uh, I think the difference is that we stopped caring what the adults said. Uh, eventually we just got tired of it 
and we were like, nope, you're done, your time is up, and we're taking over. <laughs> uh, as for what fills up my cup, um, I was prepared to answer this question. I just want to put that in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so I think what fills up my cup the most has to be um, my friends and my fellow organizers um, and seeing the change, seeing the actual tangible, like seeing all of the thousands of kids that are leaving um, school in the middle of the day uh, before Corona, at least. And seeing the different um, organizations, even just around Tucson and looking at our numbers and looking at our passion really fills me up and seeing that we all really want to incite change in a very tangible and um, long lasting way. And so that really kind of gives me hope and it, it pours something back in what the system is taking out. <laughs> yeah, I believe in like these people uh in just in everybody but i'm gonna specifically say these people on like this call so much and i know that they're gonna do like such amazing things and that they have such strong hearts and such strong ambitions that like i don't know there's when things are like really scary um that's super comforting and that like gives me hope for my work as well as just kind of in general. Um, I think it's also so nice that we've like truly become friends. Like these people aren't just my, like my colleagues, like they're definitely my friends. Um, yeah, just having connections, I guess, fills up my cup. <laughs> just to add on to that, I mean, not to be cheesy, but like you guys are definitely a lot of my motivation but I think another part of it is that kind of like what you said like the world sucks right now and you have to come to terms with that but you also have to realize that it doesn't have to be that way and that you know with the right group of people you can do something about it and you can really have a say in how the world goes and how it gets better um so I think this group has been a big part of that you know i think we've all found our strengths within organizing um and our different ways of you know making that change um so i think finding the right group really building those connections and also just realizing that there are going to be better days as long as you put the work in to get those better days so I think that uh, just to kind of uh, go off something Ruby said, uh, I think that um, I think that our generation and our age range really got tired of sitting here and being like, "Oh, it'll get better, I swear, someday," and like we actually were like, "We're gonna put the work in," and we were um, raised on these ideals of like, um, if you want something done, you do it right and you do it yourself. Um, <laughs> you want something done right do it yourself and so um, having that and also um, a lot of if you look at a lot of Gen Z humor and a lot of um, high school humor right now uh, it's a lot of dark like I don't care anymore like I, I have nothing to lose and so um, I think that really stems from our um, like Ruby said our acceptance of our situation 
and being like, yeah, the world sucks. And your point is like, if it sucks so bad, make it better. Do something about it. <laughs> I think it's super important to address as well that it's not, at least for me, and I think that that's a reality for almost every single person, but it's not like hopeful all the time. Like there are definitely days where I'm like, this is never gonna get better. The world is going to burn and I'm not going to have a life, um, which is like valid. And it's important to acknowledge that that's valid. You're not crazy for thinking that, like that is, could be a reality. But then spinning that into what like you guys have been talking about into like a, well, that doesn't have to be the reality if like I do something. Um, and if I like support the other amazing people who are doing something. Um, so yeah, like telling yourself that it's okay to be feeling that despair, but like not validifying, is that a word? Validifying? Yes. Yeah, but not, not saying- I'm not an English major. <laughs> validating the word yeah. you're looking for. Validating, it's literally just validating. <laughs> Uh, but not like validating that and like giving yourself a pat on the back when you're like really down. Um, Cause like, it's really hard to, it's really easy to get stuck in a place where you're comfortable with being in a really low point. All right. You dot now speak. Um, so before I say anything, I just want to like trigger warning. Um, I, I did like have this moment in time where I was like, I'm, like, I don't want to be here. Like, I don't want to have a future if there's not a future set out for me, you know? Like, it was, a, it was a really disappointing time. And there was also life going on in my own family. Um, but I got to the point in life where, like, like Iman said, if we wanted something done, like, we have to put in the work for it. And so I, I got really inspired um, for this Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, and I started imagining the world with indigenous sovereignty and black justice. And like, that is the only world I want to see in the future because that, like, that is world peace. Like those memes are, it's like, world, like, I don't know, but anyways, <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't picture myself doing anything else. And so my cup of tea has to be like, indigenous sovereignty and black justice and that, just thinking about that like it makes me so happy um because it's it's been so such an agonizing time to be both or in and to be even like just a kid like it doesn't matter what uh you identify but just being a kid right now is just so sad but I can only the only thing that makes me happy is just imagining my future and like um picturing exactly what I want and then going for it like um I've been saying like I had these little post-it notes uh to set myself up I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna attend a climate strike or I'm gonna attend a protest of some type or I'm gonna like go talk to my principal about um fixing something in the school and I did all of those things and I would take down the post-its um and so every year now I just do it and it just works so well. And so I think this for me, my cup of tea is setting a future for myself, imagining that future and accepting nothing else but that. And especially like in my personal life, I've had so many personal goals that I've accomplished this year. I mean, in these past few years, uh, especially working so closely with y'all 
and working with people like you, Nick, who are here to listen to our stories and are going to do something with our stories and are going to help us, you know, make a change. And so I'm so happy that we're here right now, you know. Um, you are helping me fill my goal and you are helping me fill my cup of tea. Aw, thanks. I'm going to uh, very quickly decenter myself after that moment of gratitude. I appreciate it. But really, like I said, it's about y'all. Um, yeah. Hitting me right in the feels. Just unbelievable. Okay. We're buttoned up on the hour mark. Uh, you know, I want to get y'all out of here in a timely fashion. So let's think about wrapping this thing up. Any final thoughts or questions or messages that you might want to leave our audience with who probably are older than all of you and me. Um, just a fact, right? A lot of the folks doing this work, um, traditionally, they're older, they're white. Um, yeah, what parting words do you have? Where, uh, where do you want to end this? It's never too late or never too early to get started. That's just period. Like if you're passionate about something, if you're passionate about an issue, if you want to make a change in something, do it. Like nothing can or should stop you. And if something does get in your way, then you smash it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Like if someone is telling you no, you find someone who tells you yes. And then you do the thing that you want to do. Um, you empower yourself and you find people who empower you and um, encourage you to do great things. Um, you find organizations that align with your beliefs or you create your own. <laughs> um, it's the most important thing is if you want something to change, then you have to work towards it. Like you can't just expect it to get better. You have to actually try and do something about it. And then um, even if things don't go your way, then you can say, at least I did something about it. And at least I was on the right side of history. I totally agree with Iman there. Um, but along with, you know, encouraging and supporting yourself, you have to encourage and support the people that are doing the same work as you and the people that, the people so much younger than you, the people with so much less experience than you. Um, and make sure that you're setting them up for success because you know, if you're not able, maybe this sounds a little cynical, but I think if you're not able to set someone up, someone else up for success in what you wanted to accomplish, then you really haven't accomplished it, if that makes sense. Um, so I think for all the older activists or all the older people that want to get in the scene, um, obviously go out and do that, but make sure you're supporting the people you know, 20, 30, 40 years younger than you and setting them up for success in the future as well. Learning to uh, step up as well as step back is one of the most important skills I think in life that like everyone needs to learn. Um, you know, stepping up to like responsibility to whatever it is that like you're facing um, is what like gets you places, but what keeps the places going I guess um is being able to step back and also being okay with that because that doesn't mean that you're not doing anything if anything like that's the goal of trying is to eventually you know like 
Iman and Ruby have said, like to eventually pass on that knowledge and to like allow space for someone else to like go on and forward um, with what they've learned. And I think it's sometimes really hard. Like I am a person who likes to be in control. Um, so like that's definitely hard for me, so I get it. But I think the goal is to, you know, really be okay and even excited for um, a time where like you can yeah, like step back and know that like, it's your time to step back. Yeah, like Russell said, I think um, it's really fun to go, I mean, really inspiring for me to go out and see kids younger than me doing the exact same thing or even, even more than me, like, you'd be surprised how young these kids are getting. I mean, not that they're like getting younger, but like, more <laughs> some Benjamin Button, but younger <laughs> kids are, are becoming more radical. And I think that as older folks, it's very hard for older folks to become radicalized because they feel like they have to stick to their traditional ways. And so my advice for older folks is environmentalism is very radical. And in order to uh, fully you know, change the society that we live in, you must start thinking radical and must start thinking like away from the traditional knowledge that you think that is good. Um, because like we said, capitalism is the root, pa capitalism patriarchy is the root of all of this. And we cannot, we cannot change, we cannot solve climate change without changing capitalism and patriarchy. Um, so that's where I'm going to leave that. It's okay to feel like, you, it's okay to feel that dread and it's okay to feel that anger and sadness and all those negative emotions that come with it and use those to propel you forward or even just sit in them a little bit and be like, I'm uncomfortable with this. And realize that like that uncomfort is supposed to be there because something isn't right something is wrong and we have to fix it and we have to address it and we have to make systemic change like dot is saying <laughs> and um we can't solve climate change without um breaking the systems that have caused it in the first place and that's on period Mic drop. Well said. That concludes today's chat about climate, poverty, and service here in Tucson, Arizona. You can find new episodes of the Tucson Climate Chats podcast on Fridays at anchor.fm forward slash Tucson dash climate dash chats or on Spotify and most other major audio distributors. Like the show, comments, questions, compliments, concerns, smart remarks, feel free to email me, Nick, at nspinelli, S-P-I-N-E-L-L-I, at arizonaserve.org. And gratitude to each and every one of you for the opportunity to do this work, as well as support yours. Onwards. Onwards. <laughs>